All right, well, thank you, guys. Uh, the last five and a half years have been the best, um, mainly because God's given us the chance to serve with and alongside just people that we love and the community that we love and people that have become family to us. And um, Josh had a lot of nice things to say about us, but just convinced that you guys have been a bigger blessing to us than we've been to you. So we love you. All right, let's get into God's word here. <laughs> Please join me in prayer. Our God, you're so great, and you're so good, and you're so faithful. And Lord, though we are so unfaithful to you, you're just so good in pouring your mercy over us and forgiveness. And God, all we want this morning is for you to be glorified. Lord, we want you to be lifted up and exalted. So please, God, help us now as we open up your word. Every single one of us has walked into this building with all kinds of pressure, all kinds of stress, all kinds of stuff distracting us, weighing us down. So God, push it all to the margins of our lives and of our hearts so that we can hear Your Word clearly. We do pray for our college students, Lord. We love these guys. We thank You for Your faithfulness to them, seeing them through many long nights of study and stress, and all sorts of crazy life changes in a transitional time, Lord, we pray Your blessing over these men and women. We pray that the summer would be a time of refreshing and learning. And, but Lord, we pray most of all that the summer would be such a formative time in their faith. That You would grow them deep and strong this summer. And God, we love You, and we give You all the glory for everything that takes place this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, so if you're anything like me, you, uh, you love to eat. Um, there's just something about a meal that hits the spot that's really, really satisfying. But as pleasing as a good meal can be, I want you to think back to the last time you ate a meal that tasted terrible. Now, uh, I've eaten some doozies, but when I think about questionable food, I always think about my dad's cooking. So my, uh, my dad's cooking style was this. He would go to the pantry, and he would just scan, looking for the easiest things to whip up, and then he would just mix it all together, regardless of whether it matched or not. And uh, I remember this one afternoon, as a hungry kid at lunchtime, my dad was home, so he was making me lunch. Uh, so he opens the cupboard, and, you know, and as is fitting for him, he uh, grabs some ramen noodles, he starts cooking those up, he grabs a can of beef vegetable soup, he starts cooking that up, he mixes them together, he crushes some crackers in there, he loved Worcestershire sauce, he starts sprinkling it in, and he's just grabbing things, putting it together, mixing it all together, and he plops this bowl of mush down in front of me. And it was so bad. He mixed all this stuff together and it just morphed into a terrible meal. I took a grand total of one bite, but that was enough. The uh, whole idea of it was off-putting. The texture was gross, but worst of all, it left this offensive taste 
lingering in my mouth. And I couldn't get this disgusting taste out of my mouth. So I got up, I ran to the kitchen, I opened the freezer, I grabbed the ice cream and ate a big scoop of ice cream. And that ice cream was the best thing that could have ever happened to me right then. It not only canceled out the bad taste of lunch, but it left a sweet taste in my mouth. Now that scoop of ice cream describes the closing doxology of Jude's letter. Because after a tough letter addressing hard-to-swallow realities like hardship and opposition and challenges and trial and struggle that his readers are enduring, God through Jude leaves a sweet taste in his reader's mouth. And even in a room this size, I'm guessing some of you, uh, being, just, just being a Christian in this world, it's been tiresome for some of you. I'm guessing life in general has been challenging for others, yet some of you sit here and you're not struggling. But all of us collectively, desperately, desperately, desperately need to hear the sweet, simple truths of this text this morning. So turn with me to the book of Jude. If you're not sure where Jude is, it's the second to last book in your Bible. It's right before Revelation. It is a short one chapter letter. So go to the book of Jude. We're going to be looking at verses 24 and 25. Jude 24 and 25. This is the Word of God. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Now this short two-verse doxology, which as we will see is not just a throwaway ending statement, but is a closing expression of worship to God is the sweet taste that God through Jude leaves with you. And one of the major encouragements of the passage is that God is able to keep you. God is able to keep you. Now the context of the letter is really, really interesting. Right from the very beginning, Jude tells us exactly why he is writing. And uh, what we discover is that Jude does not write the letter that he initially intended to write. Verse 3 tells us that Jude was eager to write a letter detailing common salvation about Jesus Christ. Uh, but instead, he found it necessary to write a letter uh, appealing to his readers to contend for the faith. But why? Why did the Holy Spirit prompt Jude to write a different letter? Well, as sweet as this closing doxology is, it comes after a difficult meal. You see, Jude's readers are threatened. And that threat dominates most of the body of the letter. And though we don't know the identity of these opponents, just listen to the, uh, the, 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 uh, the way that the, uh, the description of the, the threat that they present to this Christian community. Just listen to it. First, according to verse 4, we learn that they crept in unnoticed among the Christians. And while they're described as ungodly, the verse implicates these crafty, crafty people of two major offenses. First, they are perverting the gospel of grace. They are saying that God's grace gives them license to live however they want according to their own fleshly passions. And in so doing, they are abusing God's grace. We also learn that they are rejecting Jesus Christ. 
Though that they are, are, are among Christ's followers, their words, their actions, their attitudes are rejecting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, not only are these enemies creeping in among them, perverting the Gospel and rejecting Jesus, but these people are teaching false doctrine. They're promoting counterfeit practices. Verse 8 tells us that these opponents are claiming to have dreams that are inspired by God and they're relying on these dreams rather than on the authority of God's Word or on the leadership of the Holy Spirit. We're also told that they are defiling the flesh, which means they're using their body, bodies for these sinful, sensual practices. All while they're rejecting the authority that God has placed in their lives. And as condemning as that description is, this difficult meal continues. Verse 10 tells us that these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So they're like unreasoning animals. They're blaspheming the things that they don't understand. So not only do they not know the truth, but they are cursing the truth. And they are living according to their own natural, instinctive, sinful desires, which are the very same desires that are destroying them. Verses 12-13 to tell us they're also wild, they're corrupt, they're self-serving. These are backwards people who appear one way when in reality they are very, very different. Listen to the description of these opponents in verses 12-13. to These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars, for the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Think about those images. These opponents to this Christian community are described as hidden reefs at their love feast, feasting without fear. Now, love feasts were these times of fellowship that were often held alongside the Lord's Supper in the early church. And these opponents are described as hidden reefs among the Christians. Now, if a ship was sailing and it hit a hidden reef, it would be destroyed and sunk. These opponents are sneaky, dangerous. They're destructive. They are harmful. And yet they feast among these Christians as hidden reefs posing this great threat to the community without any fear whatsoever. They're also described as wild waves. They're wild. They're untamed. They're threatening. They're described as shepherds feeding themselves waterless clouds, fruitless trees. They are not doing what they were designed to do. Shepherds don't feed themselves. They care for. They feed their sheep. Clouds are meant to rain, not to be waterless. Trees are meant to bear fruit, not to be barren. Likewise, these people are counterfeit. They are self-serving. They're also described as wandering stars. It's this reference to the heavenly bodies, probably the planets, these great markers of the sky that that travelers would use for navigation. Yet these these guys are not like stars fixed in the sky that are reliable that you can count on. They're wandering. They're unreliable. They're misleading to others. And to continue piling on, they're also called grumblers, malcontents, followers of their own sinful desires, loudmouth boasters, and those who show favoritism in order to gain their own advantage in verse 16. Verses 17-19 to go even further, connecting these people 
to the Apostles' previous prediction that ungodly, divisive, worldly people who do not know the Spirit of God were going to come. Until finally, they are condemned in verse 11 with this ominous phrase, woe to them. These are the people who have crept in among the Christians unnoticed. When I was a kid, I used to go uh, duck hunting with my dad. So we'd get up really, really early in the morning. And we'd deck it out in camo. And we'd go find a nice strategic spot by the riverbank. And uh, we'd put out the decoys. And then we'd just conceal ourselves. And we would wait. And my dad would start blowing the duck call. And we would wait. We were hunting. We set a trap. We're trying to lure these ducks in for the purpose of destroying them. Likewise, these opponents have crept in among Jude's audience and they've camouflaged themselves to look like people who truly love God and truly love the church and truly love His mission in the world when really their presence is dangerous. And they've been effective. In fact, verse 22 says some in the church are wavering because of these people. So when we say that Jude's audience, his readers, are threatened, they really, really were. So much so that Jude scraps the the entire original letter that he intended to write in order to write this letter appealing to these guys, please, please, contend for the faith in the midst of this assault from these wicked people whose whole agenda is to tear you further from Jesus and further into the world. And here's the point. That's not just the struggle of Christians in Jude's day, but ours as well. Because this is also the world that we live in. And our challenges as Christians here and now are just not a whole lot different. This isn't news, but our culture is not God-honoring. We live in a fallen world that overtly but also subtly assaults core Christian beliefs. And maybe you feel it at work where the worldview of a Christian is the worldview of an outsider. Maybe you feel it in conversations with your neighbors or friends or family members. Maybe you feel it as you watch the news or look at your Facebook feed or listen to a podcast. Because nowadays, opponents don't even need to be physically near us in order to present a threat. And we would be naive to think that all of those influences do not present a danger to us subtly uh, causing us to doubt and question, manipulating the way we think about God, ourselves, life, right, wrong in the world. I was uh, recently talking to a friend of mine, and he um, used to live in L.A., and he was telling me about his experience out there. And uh, the first thing he mentioned was, yeah, you know, where I lived in L.A., there was a ton of smog. And uh, where, you know, when, when I got out there, I was just breathing in this smog like crazy. And I developed this hacking cough. And it wasn't until I moved back until that, that, that cough went away. You see, he was living in L.A. He was breathing in the smoggy air every day. It was all around him. He couldn't help but to breathe it in. And that, that's us. Living in this fallen world is like breathing in the smoggy air. We're just immersed in ungodliness. Uh, Just as my friend was gasping in lungfuls of of smog with every breath, we're breathing in unbiblical worldviews and unholy messages and perspectives that are seeping into our minds all the time. And as a result, sometimes we struggle to discern what is truth 
and what is not. We struggle with feeling defeated and discouraged when the enemy whispers divisive things into our ears and these skilled hunters set up traps all around us and the threat is really hard to identify, but they are there manipulating the truth, vying for our affection, seeking to sway and distract us further and further and further away from Jesus Christ. Do you see, our predicament is here in the context of this letter and it is distasteful, isn't it? And as encouraging as this call for Christian perseverance is in verses 20-23, to we still think, but we are threatened. We are threatened. Seriously, we're in a world that is threatening to us as God's people. So this question rises to the surface, how? How could we ever persevere? If we are like ducks flying over the hunter's trap, how could we ever persevere? How could you or I ever stand fast in a world where we come up against opponents whose whole mission in life is to tear us down? And the answer is we can't. We cannot in and of ourselves cause our faith to flourish in a world that is hostile to the Gospel. But then, Then comes the sweetness of this closing doxology where we are reminded that even in the midst of the most threatening circumstances, when you are breathing in the smoggy air, when you are flying over the hunter's trap, God is able to keep His people. God is able to keep you. Hear that this morning. God is able to keep you. Verse 24, now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Verse 24 uses this imagery of stumbling. Here's what stumbling means. It means wandering into sin. It's referring to those people who are staggering into the traps of the false teachers and in so doing, they're being led further away from God's truth. And we are called to recognize that God is the One who is able. The text presupposes that the threat is so menacing that apart from God, we would stumble. And that's an important foundational idea to take hold of that we would stumble without Him. But He is able to hold us tightly in His hand, keeping us safe, keeping us secure. The sweetness of the doxology is that the letter closes with this praise to God because He's able to keep us in the midst of all of that. And this idea of keeping carries with it an element of protection, of of God working to secure your safety. We are told that God can keep you on the path to faithfulness. Not that you'll never sin again, but God can keep you from falling deeply into the traps of the enemy. Our God is not weak. Our God is not passive. Our God is not incapable. Our God is able. And it's not only possible that God could keep you from stumbling, but that He is a God who does help His children in need. That's why the psalmist is always praising God for being a rock and a a fortress, a high tower, a shield, a refuge, a very present help in times of trouble. That's why John 10 describes Jesus as a good shepherd who cares and leads his sheep with utmost love because he's able and he delights to keep his children safe and secure. And knowing his ability to help the helpless, knowing his, uh, his power to rescue the assailed, that ought to instill faith in us. To turn to Him when we're under fire. But that just isn't our natural tendency, is it? Sometimes we question God's capacity to help. Lord, do you even hear my prayer? And if you did, do you even care to answer? And even if you care, do you even possess the capability to do anything about it? 
Other times, we just want to deal with things ourselves apart from God. Lord, I got this. Leave me alone. But let's live out the truth of the doxology which reminds us that when you are feeling squeezed by the vice of ungodly influences, and it's so apparent how weak and powerless and small you really are, you have a God who is eager to uphold and keep you that your perseverance is His work, not yours. And in those moments, you can draw near to Jesus Christ in faith. You can trust Him to help you in your weakness. You can get on your knees and do exactly what this doxology does. Praise God that through Jesus Christ, you may not be overcome or crushed by the weight of life in this world. Praising because Jesus is your sweet assurance. The text goes on to say that God is also able to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. So the doxology praises God not just for His ability to help us here in this life, but also for His power to cause us to stand before Him in judgment someday in purity. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21-22 and 22 says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in His body by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. So Jesus is able to keep you here and now as you struggle through those long, hard days of this life, but Jesus is also able to help you and to keep you on the most ominous day of your existence, the day when you will stand before a holy and righteous God having to give an account. He is able to keep you on that day. Can you believe what Jesus has accomplished for you? That people far from God, people stained with sin, people guilty as can be, can stand before a righteous and holy God above reproach, clean and forgiven, stand there in purity. It's already been done for God's people on the cross. As sure as Christ lives, it's secured. Because as a sinner confesses Jesus Christ in faith, he or she is born new and washed by the blood of Jesus and covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So now a holy and a just God looks at you and He doesn't see a lifetime of sin. He sees the perfect obedience of His Son and He welcomes you into His family as a beloved son or daughter. Thanks to Christ, you may not fall here and you will not fall then, Christian. And that leads to this overflow of great joy. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. This mention of joy is referencing the joy a Christian will know because of the work of Jesus Christ. That on the day when you, an unworthy and sinful person, are presented before a holy God as blameless because of the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ, you will know unbounding and unspeakable joy because Jesus is your sweet assurance. So do you see how this closing doxology is the sweet taste after a tough meal? Because God is able to do for you what you never could have done for yourself. And the doxology reminds us that the presence of a threat does not mean that you are lost because God is able to keep you, but we also learn that God alone can save you. God alone can save you. Verse 25, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, 
especially in challenging, threatening circumstances, we're pointed to remember that God is the only God. The uh, fifth question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is this. Are there more gods than one? And here's the answer. There is but one only. The living and the true God. And clinging to that truth is so important to us because we live in a world where God's uniqueness is doubted with real intensity. You guys know it. You have these conversations with coworkers. You watch the news. You see where things are trending. Some people just deny God's existence outright. Other people say our God, the one true holy living God of the Bible, is the same as these false gods worshipped by other religions. But you can be strengthened by God's Word here which tells us that He is the only God. That Word only is not there by accident. He is unique. Our God is the Holy Other. W-H-O-L-L-Y. He is completely other. There is Him and there is everything else. He's completely unique in character, in essence, in power, in wisdom, in authority. There is none like Him. He's the author of, of life. He's the great Creator. Who else could have spoken galaxies into existence? Who else could nourish all of creation with His providence like our God? Who else could have ordained you to be sitting here this morning like our God? Of all the ways you could be spending a Sunday morning, He has got you here not by accident. Hearing this portion of His inspired Word not by accident. So that you can come to know something about Him and delve into the riches of His grace in some fresh way not by accident. Who else could have ordained that in your life like our God? And sometimes when we are under fire, when we're threatened, when we're challenging, just remembering who He is is all the encouragement we need. You ever had one of those days you know, one of those days, I, 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 I don't even think I have the words in my vocabulary to describe it. It's one of those days where your soul just feels heavy. You know what I mean? So you come home after one of those days, long day, you get into your home, and you find a little quiet corner, and you sit down, you close your eyes, take a deep breath. You just remember who He is. Our God is the King of kings. Our God knows me. Not in a generic way. He knows me intimately. Every hair on my head, every concern that's moving through my heart, every stressor, every struggle, every temptation, He knows me. And our God is with me. He is the God who saved me, who gave His own life so that I may live. He is the God who loves me. He is the God who is for me. And after a moment of just quietly remembering who He is, your soul feels a little lighter. I love this passage. Because I imagine Jude's original readers gathering together to read this letter. And these are people who in real life know how hard it is to be a Christian in this world. And they've struggled through it. And they're reading this letter thinking, these people have crept in among us. Can you believe it? The threat is so great. And then they are led to praise God. In part because He is the only God. And I just imagine this wave of peace washing over them. 
My prayer is that regardless of what's happening in your life today, the Holy Spirit would wash you with His peace this morning as you remember who He is. Our God is unique. And as the only God, He alone can save. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. While God can keep you, He's also the only one that can save you to begin with. There is a road in the text that leads straight to Jesus Christ. Because our greatest enemy is our own sin. And only Jesus could deal with the presence and the penalty of our sin. We can't save ourselves by being moral enough. We can't save ourselves by living a good enough life. Other people cannot save you. Only Jesus. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Because Jesus, the Son of God, came and He lived this perfect life that we never could and He willingly died on the cross and He took the penalty for our sin and all the wrath of God that was being stored up because of our sin that ought to have fallen on us fell on Him on the cross. And He was crushed on the cross. But death did not conquer Him. He rose from the grave and He lives still. So now sinners like us, weak, feeble, helpless Lost people like us might call on the name of Jesus in faith, repent of our sin by grace, and receive forgiveness. Eternal life with God forever. Only because of Jesus. Jesus is your sweet assurance. And if you sit here today and you're not sure where you stand with God, all these promises that we've been discussing, that God will keep you here, that God will save you then, Those promises might be yours if you would only repent and confess. Call on the name of Jesus in faith. And if you have placed faith in Jesus Christ and you know Him as your Lord already, you can be strengthened by what you're hearing in this doxology. That your eternity has been secured by Jesus. Victory has been achieved by Jesus. All your needs have already been met by Jesus because you have been saved by Jesus. So we praise God because He's the God who's able to keep us. And we praise God because He's the only one who could ever save us. And finally, we praise Him because our God deserves eternal glory. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So the the, the doxology, but also the whole letter closes with some powerful words. Uh, but what does it mean that the only God who's able to keep and save is due glory, majesty, dominion, and authority? Well, glory is a word that's describing a worthiness, a weightiness, uh, a reverence, a splendor, a respect. Majesty is a word that's talking about an excellence, a greatness that's appropriate for His exalted position. It's talking about His grandeur. Dominion is a word that highlights uh, uh, His power, His sovereignty. The, The Lord's dominion is His sovereign freedom to do whatever it is He wants. While His authority is His sovereign right to do whatever it is He wants. These are words that are reserved for the highest, the greatest, the most glorious, and they're all working together here to give us this full picture showing us that our God is worthy. Astoundingly, God is worthy of all these things. Right here today, in eternity past, and into forever. 
God is worthy of glory. And these closing words give us perspective, don't they? Because as we join Jude in praising God through proclaiming that glory, majesty, dominion, and authority are His before all time and now and forever, suddenly those trials that are hanging over your life like a black cloud don't feel so frightening. And all these competing influences are all around you don't feel so daunting because the one true holy living God who's worthy of all fame and honor, who's keeping and saving His people, who possesses all sovereign authority, is working to keep and to save. And so the sweetness comes in praising God for who He is even when life is hard. We praise Him for who He is even when life is hard. Can you imagine how your suffering would look if you learned in the midst of suffering to think about who He is? and to praise Him, and to wash yourself and be reminded by the Gospel in the midst of it. Having the discipline to worship our good and faithful God even while you're suffering. That is a biblical response to hurting. It's also a great way to minister to other people who are hurting. To look to the realities, the the truths, the promises of God knowing that your trials are just not bigger than Him. That was Jude's message to his original readers. You're under attack. There are influences in this world that are working to pull you from Jesus. But there is a way to persevere. And your perseverance is found in the One who's able to hold you fast and keep you secure and save you to the uttermost. Jesus is your sweet assurance. Jesus is your sweet assurance. So all those years ago, uh, eating that terrible bowl of mush, um, I was saved by a scoop of ice cream. And uh, my prayer is that as you experience the foul taste of false teaching and opposition and hardship and trial of a culture that is tugging at your attention, pulling you this way and that, that you would learn to savor the sweetness of this doxology. That you would know in the midst of it all, You may not be conquered or overwhelmed or overrun because Jesus is your sweet assurance. Jesus is your sweet assurance. Please pray with me. Our God, we love You. And we thank You for what You've done for us on the cross. But Lord, we thank You that Your work didn't stop there. That You're with us even now. And you care and you help and you've got all the ability and all the power. And Lord, as we respond to this text, I just ask you would do a work in each of our hearts that causes us all to humble ourselves before you and recognize how desperately we need you. That you're the only one that could ever forgive our sin and make us right with you. But Lord, also that even in the details of our lives, and there's The people in this room represent so many challenging life things. But God, we trust You with them. And we plead with You for help. We plead You in the midst of them all that You would keep us far from sin and close to Yourself. Let us stand in this dark world as lights who honor and glorify You, Lord Jesus Christ, is what we pray. We love You and we praise You and we give You all the glory. In Your name we pray. Amen.